Amen. All right, ladies, good evening. Um, clearly, I'm not Jen. Uh, my name is Ann Lincoln Hollibaugh. I, um, Jen is a, a dear friend of mine, and um, I've filled in for her a, a few times within the study. I was a part of this study for several years and loved it and love every opportunity I have to come back and spend time with you. Jen is actually in Nashville this week. Some of you may have seen on Twitter some other places that she has the opportunity to do some um, teaching that's going to be recorded for Lifeway and um, a study that will be available. So be praying for her this week. She'll be teaching tonight, tomorrow night, and Thursday night, I believe. But I am here with you tonight as we venture into James chapter 2, and I'm so excited about what we get to look at this week. So last week, we saw that genuine faith lives in active obedience to God's Word. It not only hears God's Word, but it responds in action. It does God's Word. And we also saw at the end of chapter 1, um, what James talked about as pure religion, that genuine faith um, purely lived out manifests itself in care for the weak and care for the vulnerable, in particular the orphan, the widow, those within our community that are overlooked, disregarded, um, those that are at risk. And those who name Jesus as Lord show care for these weak among our community. And this very idea of regard for the weak is going to be at the heart of what James is going to talk about in chapter 2 as we see that genuine faith does not discriminate. Genuine faith does not show partiality. Uh, And I know this week, uh, as you worked through this passage, probably hit um, some of you in in different ways. There may be um, some who, as you were working through this particular passage, really it hit kind of close to home. And the sting of being treated differently based on how you look, whether that's as a woman or the color of your skin or um, where you fall in the socioeconomic, you know, food chain, that, that sting is very real. And you saw it from that vantage point. And then there may be some of you who were reading through this passage and you felt like, I have just never had the experience of being overtly rude to a poor person and I cannot imagine treating someone with such disregard if they came into my church. I just am not sure how to identify with what James is talking about here and I'm not quite sure what to do with this passage. Maybe that was some of you as you were working through it this week. Um, And as we're going to see, James is going to show us that um, there are some things underneath this sin of partiality. And then also, um, he's going to pull our eyes up to see this royal law of love that governs the kingdom of God. So let's jump into James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And we know at the end of chapter 1, what's come just before these words was a call to pure religion, like we just mentioned, um, a call to care for the vulnerable and the overlooked. And we're going to continue to see James emphasizing that the way we care for those that are poor and weak and vulnerable gives evidence to whether or not we truly belong to Jesus and understand the gospel. And he starts with a very clear directive. Do not show partiality. 
doesn't get much more clear than that. And this word partiality actually means a receiving of the face. It's almost a direct translation of the Old Testament Hebrew language that was used um, in the law in relation to partiality. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but this idea of um, someone making a judgment based on what is on the external, the external appearance, um, things that were were, um, able to be seen, such as social status or race. But before we jump into that, I want to draw your attention to a few things in this first verse, because if you'll think about it, James could have said simply, show no partiality. My brother, show no partiality. He could have stopped there, And the directive would have been very clear, but he doesn't do that. He continues on and he says, my brother, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He wants to draw our attention straight back to Jesus. And he's doing at least a few things here. Um, James is, um, we know that there are two places where James directly references Jesus in this letter. This is one of them. And he is acknowledging his brother as God. He's emphasizing Jesus' deity. He names him as Lord. He identifies him as the promised Messiah in, um, in calling him the Lord Jesus Christ. He is um, also giving a reference to this ongoing action of these believers holding the faith in Jesus Christ. There is both an encouragement and an exhortation to endure. Remember, they are facing great difficulty, great persecution. So there's an exhortation to endure as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's also anchoring them back into their identity, their calling, their allegiance as those who call upon the name of Jesus and are called by the name of Jesus. He may also be trying to connect their Old Testament understanding of partiality they would have been familiar with in the law to what it means to walk now as a Christ follower. There's great unity in what the Old Testament taught and now how you are to live as a Christian. But notice, lastly, this way that James refers to Jesus. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's kind of an unusual reference. We don't see it in many other places. And it can actually be um, translated directly as to Jesus, the glory. So James, again, is looking um, at the deity of Jesus and wanting to lift the eyes and the heads of his readers to focus there, to see that Jesus is the glory of God, the exact representation of his being. We know that from Hebrews 1.3. It says he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. And when we look at Jesus, we see what God is like because Jesus is God. Jesus, the glory. And no doubt, James also wants to remind his readers that there is one and only one worthy of glory. And it's no man, whether rich or poor, it is Jesus Christ. He is the one worthy of glory. And Jesus has something to say about those um, who are called by his name and how they are to be treated. If Jesus bestows honor, if he bestows favor on someone, we need to pay attention to who that is. So my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory.
Let's continue on. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James puts before them this hypothetical situation. He may be even exaggerating here just a little bit to make a point. But in this scenario, there is um, outward overt discrimination going on where the rich are favored and the poor are pressed down. They are dishonored. It is blatant. It is obvious based on what they can tell about these two men from what they are wearing. So it's a judgment, again, made on these external appearances. The rich man is treated well. He's given honor and preference, but simultaneously the poor man is being treated poorly with disregard and dishonor. It's not simply that the poor man's just being ignored. He is being cast to the cast to the side, put down in the lowest place. They received the face of the rich man and lifted him to a place of honor, and they received the face of the poor man and made a judgment that he goes over there or he goes down at my feet where my feet might rest. And James asks a rhetorical question here to expose the sin that's going on at the heart of this situation. He's saying, um, if you do this, you, you make these distinctions. Aren't you making yourself judges with these evil thoughts? He's saying, you have seen fit to put yourself in the place of judge, and your judgments are evil This phrase, made distinctions among yourselves, um, it actually works out to something along the lines of, are you not inconsistent within yourselves? Which is this idea of division, of inconsistency within. It actually has a really similar feeling and meaning and idea as something we saw in chapter one where James was talking about the double-minded man. What he's saying is there are things happening in your heart that are contrary to the gospel. So the gospel message, this implanted word, it's living inside of you. But there are also things hanging out in there that are in complete opposition to that. Are you not in contradiction and in inconsistency within yourselves? There are things that don't match. These believers, their words and their actions, they don't match. They were making decisions about who was worthy of honor and who wasn't. Who mattered and who didn't. Who benefited them to impress and who was simply in the way. They were confessing Jesus as Lord, but yet they were violating the very law that Jesus came to establish and to fulfill, the law of love. And surely we can all identify with this. Surely for each of us, there are things we would acknowledge and affirm to be true and right and good according to God's word and his good commands, and yet we We walk in a way that's contrary to that. We would say the gospel lives inside of me, but there are inconsistencies also. There are places where I have belief that's contrary to the gospel. I know one thing, but I do something 
else. And this is very often the most evident when it comes to the way that we treat other people. That's what's happening here. There's something in the heart underneath partiality that needs to be dealt with that's working itself out in preferential treatment for the rich and discriminatory uh, preference or treatment um, of the poor. And so this idea of people and interaction really fleshing out the heart is something you and I live and breathe all the time. And I don't know about you and how you're wired, but for me, when it comes to people, people kind of become my problem. They kind of get in my way. And I think sometimes, you know, Lord, if I just could obey your word and not have to deal with all these people, I think I would do a lot better. But that's just not how it works out. You know, on this side of heaven, interaction with people and walking in community, it's not optional. It's how God has hardwired us and our relationships with others demonstrate, have the potential to demonstrate something powerful and something really beautiful about the gospel, no matter how we're wired. You know, I tend to have a small degree and sometimes a giant degree of fear when it comes to people. You know, I, I'm an introvert by nature and, um, and maybe some of you can relate to that. Sometimes people, I just feel kind of exhausted. I like to say, you know, I'm a crockpot. You know, some people are microwaves. They just, you, you put something in there, it heats up real fast. You know, no big deal. And they're like, people, people, people all the time. And some people are Evans, but I am a crockpot. You know, put something in me and you turn it on and you let it hang out all day. And it's going to heat up. It's going to get nice and warm. And at the end, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be falling apart good and all those flavors and juices. But you got to wait all day. And I tend to be that way with people. Maybe some of you are that way as well. But regardless of how we're wired, the gospel comes in and it transforms the way that we see people. But the way that we treat people, the way that we interact with them, the degree of fear we feel among them, it shows something about what we believe. And sometimes we don't see people as people at all, but instead we can see them as objects. So sometimes we can see people as obstacles, you know, like you're in my way. I'm going this way and you are my way and you need to move. And I'm irritated that you're there. We can see them as obstacles or sometimes we can see them as vehicles. You are a means to my end. And so I will use you according to my agenda and then I will be done with you. Or sometimes we see people as threats. You know, surely as women, we can relate to that. We have um, fear and comparison and jealousy when it comes to our very sisters. We see one another as threats at times. And sometimes all we can see are differences. It's all we can see. And they scare us because they are unknown. Maybe you can relate to this both from having thought those things or been on the receiving end. No one likes to feel objectified because we're not objects. We're people, we're flesh and blood. And according to the word of God, we're image bearers, all of us. And the gospel transforms, it changes the way we see people. We get new eyes. It redefines what we believe about people and their power in our lives. We see them as ones created by the God we love, who bear his image and are to be treated with care and with dignity, regardless of circumstance. And within the family of believers, we see one another as a brother or a sister for whom Christ died. And for those outside the family of faith, we see a soul in need of reconciliation and forgiveness, in need of the gospel. We see people as people, as image bearers, as those who 
um, show us something about the beauty, the creativity, the intentionality of God. And at the end of the day, and at the end of all things, when we have gospel lenses, we understand that we are very much the same. And our need for Jesus, our need to be rescued from sin, our desperate state of poverty of soul, all of that is the same. No matter how much money is, our banking in, is in our banking account, no matter what kind of education we have, no matter what our background is, we get new eyes and we have been given a new heart. So in your homework, one of the questions you, um, you were thinking about, and maybe I hope you had time in your group to talk about this, is how partiality plays itself out in our churches today. It's still very much, very much a part um, of the life of the body, even though we may not want to acknowledge it. And some of us may not have eyes to see it. But there is this kind of sad, heart-wrenching reality that people are treated different when they walk inside the doors of the church based on how they look, whether that has to do with race or disability or some other external factor. They're treated different, and this cannot be among the people who claim Jesus as Lord. Um, You know, James in this passage He doesn't mince words about this situation. He calls those who are passing these kinds of judgments those with evil thoughts. And he gives clear warning that these kinds of thinking, um, they cannot have safe harbor in our hearts. The beautiful thing about the gospel in relationship is it not only reconciles us vertically, it reconciles us to God, but through the blood of Jesus, we're also reconciled to one another. And the gospel breaks down the dividing walls of hostility that separate us based on um, any sort of difference, any sort of prejudice we might have well up inside of our heart. The gospel answers that. And so we have to come face to face with the question, how do we see people? Where is our view of people, our belief about them inconsistent with the gospel? Where are we tempted to make judgments and decisions about people based on what we see on the outside? Are there any places where we pursue people for friendship because we think we have something to gain? Who is it that gets priority in our time and our attention? Who do we make space for in our calendars? Who are we taking initiative to get to know, to pour into, to invest in? We all know what it's like probably to desire, um, you know, that experience or that idea of being near someone who has a place of prominence or a place of importance in the room. We kind of just want to be right next to that person who is important. We crave the experience of feeling favored or feeling close to someone who is. Maybe you've had the experience of feeling like someone's favorite. It feels pretty awesome. Whether that was, you know, like you're in elementary school and you were just the class, you know, like the class favorite, the teacher's pet, whatever that experience was for you. It feels awesome, but it can wreak havoc. Favoritism destroys relationships. And really, if you think about it, that idea of feeling secure and affirmed in interaction with other people is actually what we should desire other people to feel in our presence. Not because we're important, not because we have this, you know, shiny place, but because they have our attention and because we're treating them with care and with dignity. Shouldn't we want people to feel that way, valued and seen and known as we interact with them? 
The gospel changes the way we see others. And James is addressing, addressing this issue of partiality um, kind of at a, a big level and at a heart level, but there's a specific situation that he's addressing here in chapter 2, and it has to do in particular with the way the poor are being treated. So let's continue on looking at verse 5. He says this, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So James is very inquisitive in this, uh, in these, uh, you know, few verses. That's one of the reasons I like James, especially in this chapter. He's a question asker, and I'm a question asker. I'm, I like to ask questions, and if you'll notice, all of these questions are rhetorical. He's asking them, not expecting that they're going to have to sit and consider, and they're not sure what the answer is. He is trying to lead them to a conclusion based on things they already know. He's trying to communicate a point here. So let's just think about the questions that he's asking and what points he's trying to make. Let's see what we can learn, even by thinking about um, this series of questions or this long question in verse 5. Let's see what we um, hear from James about the poor and God's heart toward them. So it says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. So we know James is talking about those who are actually poor, not figuratively poor. They are actually literally poor. They do not have enough to get by. They have no standing in society, no power, no place of prominence. They are poor. They are vulnerable. They are chosen by God. So we see God chooses. He's chosen the poor. He's made them rich in faith. He's made them heirs of the kingdom of God. This is according to the promise he makes to those who love him. So the conclusion he's drawing is they love him. They love Jesus. And you love Jesus. The same Jesus that you love, they love. The same promise that he made to you, he's made to them. The same inheritance that you have, the same riches of faith that you have, they have. You are the same. God's heart toward the poor is something James really wants them to pay attention to and to remind them of. This is likely not brand new news for those that are reading this letter from James. And although James kind of put us in a fictitious situation, it's very clear in these verses that he is addressing something that is actually a reality. Kind of gave us the situation, a little bit of a hyperbole, but there is something seriously happening among these believers related to discrimination of the poor. They were actively demeaning and honoring them, even though God had bestowed honor um, on them in Christ. And the scriptures are full of evidence that God is mindful of and feels deep compassion for the poor, for the weak, 
the outcast, the vulnerable. Throughout the Old Testament, especially in the law, if you think about Exodus and the book of the covenant and the Levitical laws, God makes provision for the poor. He's not ignorant of their existence in society. He's not ignorant that they are vulnerable to being exploited and pressed down and harmed. They are um, often lacking the ability to achieve justice for themselves. And so he makes provision in his covenantal law for their good. In Exodus 22 and 23, we see that God makes provision for them, protecting them from injustice and exploitation. We see in Leviticus 14 that God makes provision for the poor who could not afford the standard sacrifice. We see in numerous places, um, but specifically Leviticus 23 and 25 in Deuteronomy chapter 15, that God consistently calls his people to treat the poor with mercy and to meet their needs. Psalm 113 verses 7 and 8 says that the Lord raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Jesus himself came as a poor man. He was born in a stable to poor parents. He lived a humble and meager life. He did not come rich. He came poor. And even beyond circumstantial poverty, if you just consider it, Jesus condescended to enter the poverty of the human condition. Even in becoming a man with flesh like ours, Jesus was entering into poverty, a poor state. He chose the position and the posture of a servant, and he willingly died a humiliating criminal's death. He identifies with the poor man, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. He was not much to look at, Isaiah 53 is going to tell us. He was rejected and he was despised. And listen to what Paul has to say in 2 Corinthians. This is in chapter 8. He's talking about, um, he's an, it's an exhortation toward generosity. And he says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus' poverty, his entry into the human condition, his sinless life as a humble man, his death for sin on the cross, his victorious resurrection, it purchased for us true riches that can never perish, spoil, or fade, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. Jesus became poor so that we might become rich in faith. God sees the poor. He is mindful of their need. He hears their cry and he makes provision for them. And he expects all who follow his son and bear the name of Jesus to do the same thing because we've been given new hearts that are like his. And because anyone who trusts Jesus as Lord knows what it's like to be desperately poor, a poverty of spirit. So last week when we were in chapter one, we um, learned about looking into the perfect law like a mirror. 
When we look into the perfect law like a mirror, it tells us the truth about who we are. And we look into the truth of God's word, into the truth of the gospel, we see that we are completely bankrupt internally because of our sin. And apart from Jesus, we have no hope and absolutely no way to provide for ourselves. We are completely dependent on the mercy of God. And his mercy toward us is not based on our financial status or how good we can be or what we have to offer him. He is not partial. God does not show partiality. His kindness toward wretched sinners is not earned. It is not deserved. He has regarded us in our helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for our soul. He's made us his own at his expense. This idea of soul poverty, of a desperate need for those who live in abundance, it can be hard to identify with. That's why sometimes and in some ways it's easier for those who are poor in the physical to identify with the gospel. They understand desperation. They understand I have no hope apart from somebody else's mercy and generosity. Sometimes those with success and abundance have a hard time identifying that they have spiritual lack and they have need. Listen to Jesus' warning. This is in Revelation chapter 3. He's talking to those at the church at Laodicea. Um, He's going to point out this very thing. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were rather, or that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your, make, your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. We hear this as an echo of Isaiah 55, this great invitation where the Lord says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we understand the gospel, we understand poverty. We know what it's like to be in complete need. And the gospel is the great leveler. It's the great leveler. It takes the poor man and lifts him up. And it takes the rich man and it pulls him down. That's why in chapter 1 we heard James talk about, um, he said it this way. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So for the poor man, the gospel lifts him up, declaring him to be rich in Christ, guaranteeing him treasure in heaven as he leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. And he trusts Jesus to provide daily bread along the way. And then for the rich man, the gospel brings him low. 
The gospel reveals the temporary and untrustworthy nature of money and possessions. It sets him free from the vain pursuit of storing up treasure on earth, on this side of heaven. The gospel shows us that riches will not last and they do not save and they will not shield anyone from God's righteous judgment on the last day. And in fact, those with abundance, if we look at what the scriptures say, we really should feel a little bit nervous, a little bit uneasy, because as the scriptures speak of those with great wealth, um, they often speak in words of warning, and we would do well to pay attention. Jesus refers to riches as deceitful. He warned that we cannot serve both God and money. Paul writes to Timothy about many who had fallen away from the faith because the love of money and possessions had enticed them. And then later in this book, James is going to have some very strong words to say for those who are wealthy. God knows that riches and worldly wealth and comfort and status and all of the things to which money lends itself, they vie for our affections. Um, Yeah. So what we do with the way we treat people reveals our hearts. And in the same way, the way that we interact with money and approach it reveals our hearts as well. And the way that we treat the poor in our lack or in our abundance also exposes whether or not we understand the gospel and whether or not we truly belong to Jesus, understanding the mercy that we have received. Jesus himself makes care for the poor a litmus test for those who claim to follow him. In Matthew um, 25, this is toward the end of Jesus' life, um, Matthew 25 is all in red. Jesus is um, saying many things toward the end of his life, and he is speaking very strongly. And one of the parables he tells is about, um, uh, about some sheep and about some goats. And he's talking about the day of his return um, when he will separate um, one group from another. One group... Um, cared for the hungry, cared for the thirsty, clothed those that were in need, visited the lonely, cared for the sick, and the other saw the need and did nothing, saw the need and did nothing, saw the need and did nothing. Jesus goes to one group and says, you've done this. And they say, but Lord, we never saw you hungry or thirsty or in need. And Jesus says, whatever you did for one of these least of the brothers of mine, it's just like you were doing it for me. They revealed their allegiance to Jesus by the way that they cared for the poor. And the other group said, Jesus, we never saw you hungry or thirsty. Like, we would have helped you. We never saw you in need of clothes. We never saw you lonely and in need of being visited. We would have come to you. We would have helped you. Jesus, you know that. We love you. He says, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did not do for me. The way that we see the poor and the way that we treat the poor reveals to us our understanding of the gospel um, and whether or not we truly belong to Jesus. I want to encourage you, if you have um, some space to sit and think and sit underneath the scriptures, uh, Matthew 25 is an incredible passage. It is very strong. And every time I read it, I feel a little bit nervous about what my life reveals about my heart and about my faith. Now, if I had to guess, I would um, kind of expect that probably there aren't many or any of us in this room that are actively, egregiously, consciously oppressing the poor in our community. 
mean, maybe, I hope not. Um, I think for us, it can look a little bit more subtle. It might be that we are just completely unaware that the poor in our community aren't on our radar at all. We don't see them. We don't interact with them. And this would be kind of a passive form um, of just ignorant um, oppression in a sense. That's a very strong word, but it is the reality. We know that there are those that are in great need. And even if they are not right in front of our face, the gospel would compel us to go where they are and do what we can to meet needs and to extend mercy. And in interacting with the poor, for those of us who have awareness, maybe even on a global level, as we read about injustices that take place, sometimes it's just that it feels too overwhelming. It feels crushing and like we do not know what to do or where to begin. And we feel like I can do nothing to fix this. And one one thing that's interesting when we think about a situation that is so big, we feel like I have to fix poverty. I have to fix the system. I have to make sure all of the hungry are fed. I do not know what to do. All we need to do is take the step and interact with the person and value them. When we think about how James talked about pure religion, if you remember what he says about orphans and widows, he says, visit them in their affliction. Visit them in their affliction. He doesn't say pure religion is fixing the affliction, though we should contend for justice. Pure religion is being with them, interacting with them, friendship, relationship. That is care for the poor. We should seek to meet needs, but we should not overlook the very foundational core need of the heart in community and friendship. Regardless of the reason to disregard or to dishonor the poor man, to overlook and ignore someone in need, Um, is to stand in opposition to the heart of God for the poor. And the brothers and sisters to whom James was writing, they had lost sight of God's heart. They were distracted um, and looking at other things. Their sight was distorted. They were not only dishonoring the poor, so those to whom God had bestowed honor and value and worth in the gospel, but they were pandering to their oppressors. They were giving preferential treatment to the rich in order to gain favor and perhaps to avoid being treated poorly themselves. They were pressing their brother down to escape their own oppression. And those who reviled and hated the name of Jesus were actually being given preferential treatment in the church. He says, these rich that are oppressing you, they blaspheme the name by which you were called. And it's important to understand that these believers to whom James was writing, they were very likely poor themselves. The norm in um, this time in New Testament Christianity was poverty and affliction. That was kind of the New Testament norm for the believer. They knew affliction, they knew persecution, and they were likely being oppressed in this situation by wealthy Jews. They were being pressed down, drug into court. But these wealthy Jews were also sitting underneath oppression from Rome. And we see that oppression tends to um, perpetuate itself. Those who are sitting under injustice, who are hard-pressed, who maybe see someone who's weaker below them, tend to press down also because um, to do that, to exert any measure of power over someone weaker, gives kind of this sick sense of being in control. And this sort of situation was what was playing 
going out, even into the church. They were compromising righteousness in order to avoid the pain of obedience to being a child of God. The gospel does not discriminate, and God's children do not show favoritism to the rich over the poor because it does not represent the heart of God and also because it violates the law that Jesus um, established and fulfilled in the law of love. So let's continue on um, and learn what this means um, starting in verse 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So there's a lot going on here. Um, James starts by talking about this royal law according to the scriptures, and he is quoting Leviticus chapter 19. He's especially quoting verse 18, but um, it says this, starting in verse 17, out of Leviticus 19. The Lord says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Love that the Lord just states, I am the Lord. It's almost like he's saying, Fear me obey me. This is good. And we learn that the standard by which we are to measure our love for others is ourselves and the way that we love ourselves. We are awesome at loving ourselves. We do not have a hard time being uppermost in our own affections and treating ourselves preferentially. It's just like second nature. We know how to do this. And the law of love, this royal law, that the Lord Institute says, you need to love your neighbor just like you love yourself, preferentially, preferential love. And of course, we know these words maybe more familiarly from Jesus. He restates this in Matthew 22, establishing the first and the second command. And he says that um, love for God and love for neighbor sums up all the law and all the prophets. You do well. You're good to go if you just do these two things. Love God first and most with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's all you got to do. No big deal. You're going to be set. Love for God. Love for neighbor. It sums up every bit of the law. All of the meticulous detail that God sets into place in the book of the covenant and the Levitical law. It is all summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself means that you will walk justly. You will extend mercy. It is this royal law, the law of the kingdom. So we can think about this law of love is what governs the kingdom of heaven. That's cool. Like how good is God that the law that governs the kingdom of heaven is the law of love. That's pretty good stuff. And just think about what life would be like. Just imagine with me for a moment what life would be like if we all walked in complete obedience to this royal law of preferential love. That would be pretty good. And that day is coming. It is promised for us as Jesus returns and issues in a new kingdom 
um, a new heaven, a new earth. But on this side, we're still working it out, right? We're still wrestling with sin. And so we need to understand where we get tripped up and where we struggle um, to walk in complete obedience to this royal law of love. Um, In your homework, you looked at a passage in Romans 13 where Paul echoes this same idea um, that James is talking about. What James is saying is um, to show preference and to show partiality and to discriminate violates this law of love. So partiality and discrimination and judgment based on outward appearance or worldly standards, that's not loving. That situation we looked at in verse 2, that situation was not loving. You were not loving the poor man. You really weren't loving the rich man either. You were exalting him just for your own gain. And Paul's going to say it like this. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong or no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is our opportunity to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We've heard this word, love your neighbor as yourself. And now we get to do it. We get to walk it out. And James makes it clear, if you're showing partiality, you're sinning. If you are tempted to look down on people, you're sinning. If you make decisions about people and treat them differently based on what they look like, you are sinning. If you take advantage of people who um, don't have the ability to achieve justice on their own, you are sinning. If you neglect the needs of the poor, you are sinning. If you're only nice to someone because you have something to gain from their friendship, you are sinning. If you think that you are loving people well, except for this one little area of your heart where you harbor judgment or you harbor discrimination, it's as though you are not loving people at all. That's what James is trying to say in verses 10 and 11. The law of God is a whole unified, um, indivisible thing. It sounds like a terrible noun to associate with the law of God, but it's to be thought of as a whole and unified. We don't get to pick and choose which commands we want to obey at which times. You know, can you imagine? I mean, it's how we live. I feel like each day I'm tempted. It's like I've got all of the laws of God in front of me in this little box, and I think that one seems good today. I think that one's going to be pretty easy. I can get along with this person and this person and this person and submit to this authority and this authority, but not this one. Eh, not today. That, I'll think about that next week. Or I can show kindness to this person and I can sacrifice for this person, but not that person. Or not today. Or only for an hour. We don't get to do that. We don't get to pick and choose which commands of God we obey and which ones we don't. He requires complete obedience. God's standard of holiness is complete and perfect holiness. It's not as though we get most of it right and we're going to be okay. Like if we get a 99 on the test, we're good to go. If we get a 99, we fail. If we make a 100 based on our own effort, we fail. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the Lord. What we need is Jesus' complete and perfect obedience. And that is what's transferred to us when we trust him. We talked last week about how we are set free to obey the law because we've been fully justified in the death of Jesus. The full penalty of our sin has been taken care of. Jesus' complete and perfect obedience is 
ours. That's what God sees when he looks at us. And we've been set free to obey the commands of God. And his commands are not burdensome. That's what John's going to say um, in First John 5, 3. He says, this is love for God, that we keep his commandments, and they are not burdensome. Sometimes when we think about law and obedience, these words, they can kind of get a rise up in us because at our core, we just don't like to be told what to do. We want to be self-willed and do our own thing. And sometimes we see God's law as kind of an infringement of our will, which it is because our will is bad. God shows us the very best way to live in obedience to his law. The law of love leads to great joy, the best possible way to live. Okay, let's wrap up verses 12 and 13. We're so close. We know that if we're faithful to love others, to love God, to love others, um, we're keeping the whole of the law. And so James says, um, so speak and so act. He's um, talking about a way of life. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what James is saying here is not that we don't, um, that we purchase God's mercy by our merciful acts. That's not what he is saying. We are fully justified um, by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, in Christ alone. But what he's talking about is our extension of mercy, our willingness, our ability, our eagerness to extend mercy reveals that we have in fact received and been transformed by the mercy of God. And where there is no mercy, there is no ability, there is no willingness to extend mercy to others, that shows that our hearts have not received and been transformed by the mercy of God. Jesus tells a parable with a, a similar dynamic in the parable of the unmerciful servant. If you're familiar with that in Matthew chapter 18, where a servant was forgiven a huge debt by a king, more than he could ever pay. And then he immediately demands of a fellow servant payment of a much smaller debt. And when that servant cannot pay, he sends him to prison. He had no heart change as a result of receiving mercy. Those whose hearts have been changed by God show mercy to others. That's what James is trying to say here. And those who have not received the mercy of God, they do receive judgment without mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. He ends with this gospel proclamation, this gospel reminder that for those who trust Jesus, God's mercy is theirs. They do not get what they deserve. That's what mercy means. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. What we deserve is wrath and punishment and separation. And all of those things have been put on Jesus in our place. And what we get instead is adoption, sonship, the receiving of grace, the transformation of our heart. We have no fear of judgment. We do not bear the penalty and the punishment for our sin. We have no need to live in fear. We have been set free from fear to live lives of love. And if you consider those that you know who seem to be the most loving, the most generous, the most forgiving, the most compassionate, 
they are probably those that are the most free from fear, from sin, from pride that corrupts our heart and every relationship. They're free, abiding and trusting in the love of God. That's what the love of God does. It casts out this fear. And when there is this connection and this flow of trusting God's love for us, we are just set free and liberated, yes, to obey and to love others. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we've seen tonight that genuine faith, real gospel heart transformation does not show partiality. It does not judge others according to worldly standards. It lives a life of mercy according to the law of love, showing preferential treatment to everyone except ourselves, right? This law of love, this preferential treatment means we treat everyone with preference, just like we would want to be treated. We've seen that God's heart is unmistakably toward the poor. It's not that he has no regard for the rich. He loves his children. He is compassionate toward those who are in need and calls his children to have his heart and to live a life that demonstrates mercy as well. So as we um, come to a close, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. But I want to leave you with just a few questions to consider. Are there any areas in which you are tempted to show partiality? Are there places in your heart where you find yourself judging based on external appearance? Where might you be considered a transgressor when it comes to this law of love, the royal law of the kingdom? Are there any places where you are tempted to compromise righteousness to avoid the pain of obeying God? Where does obedience to his word just feel like it is too much and you're tempted to disregard a command uh, because it just feels like it is too costly? And are you actively or passively contributing to the oppression of the poor? Are they even a part of your thinking? Are you mindful of those in our community who tonight will not eat and tomorrow will not eat and do not have a safe place to be, who have deep aching concern over the welfare of their children who work hard and are yet not able to meet their most basic needs? Are they even a part of our thinking, our praying, our seeking to live lives of mercy? So let's pray together. We'll be done. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you, God, that we are sealed um, (laughs) by grace because of Jesus. And thank you that you have regarded each of us in our desperately poor estate. You've You've had mercy on us when we could do nothing to save ourselves. And thank you that you transform our hearts. You do change us, Jesus. And you give us hearts that look like yours. And so we say all the more we want hearts and lives that look like yours. So show us, please, God, um, where we walk in error where we need you to come in and iron out the kinks in our belief when it comes to people. Um, Show us, Lord, where we have a blind eye to the overlooked, to the downcast, to the poor in our midst. Show us, Lord, how to be your hands and your feet in a very real way, all for your glory. Let your kingdom come, let your will be 
done. Pray a blessing over these women. In the name of Jesus, ask, Lord, that as we leave tonight, you would bless them, that you would keep them, that you would make your face shine upon them, that you would encourage them, that they would hope all things in Christ, and together that we might eagerly look to his coming. Um, Ask it all in the name of Jesus.